Please find Romans chapter 12 with me. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. I'd like to begin by reading the text I want us to uh, delve into this morning. Romans 12, beginning in verse 14. Romans 12, beginning in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think we all have an innate thirst for justice. We have an ingrained desire to see things turn out evenly and justly. We like seeing good things happen to good people. And when bad people do bad things, we like for a punishment to be doled out that fits the crime. I think each of us sort of has a a balance sheet in our heads and a constant longing to see the credits and the debits equal out. We want punishment that fits the crime. We want wrongdoers to get their due. We want innocent people to be vindicated and and be shown to be be right and be made whole if possible. And so, of course, that works itself out in big ways in the justice system where people who do big wrongs get consummate punishments, we hope. But we also want it in small ways. We are outraged if someone less deserving gets a promotion over us. We're outraged by that. And we're incensed if we're we're the target of unfair criticism. We're outraged about that injustice. You know, I was thinking about personal examples. I'll give you uh, uh, the greatest example of injustice perhaps in the history of the world. Um, Megan and I once went to Sonic uh, after after church service on a Sunday evening, and I ordered a cheeseburger, and we brought it home. And when I opened it up, there was a bun, and there was cheese, and there was lettuce, there was tomato, but there was no burger. They left the burger out of the cheeseburger. And I had felt... No more outrage than I did my whole life at that moment. We understand that. That's a silly example. You understand that. You have very real examples of that feeling. We experience injustice and we have no recourse. And so our instinct very often is that of vengeance. That if no one will give me justice, if the the universe isn't going to make things right, if God's not going to even out the scales, then I guess that's my job. Vengeance is retribution for a wrong done to me. It's an attempt to even the scales of justice myself. And part of what I want to drive home to you is, yeah, there's big, you know, examples of that. If you're a a fan of the movie Princess Bride, there's the big example of, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. That's kind of a big, grandiose example. But it doesn't have to be that grandiose sort of vendetta to be vengeance. You know, vengeance is being just kind of passive-aggressive toward the person who got the promotion I thought I deserved. And so we sort of get our pound of flesh a little bit at a time over the next few months or years. Vengeance is keeping score of all the time someone else left you out. 
and they forgot your invitation or they snubbed you. And so I conveniently to forget to include you in something I might have going on. Vengeance in our lives looks like the vicious cycle of husband and wife who continually <coughs> snipe at each other and critically say, continually say hurtful and critical things, who dredge up past baggage in every argument or give each other the silent treatment because of what you've done to me. And we've got the ledger on our head, and so we're going to even that out. And then the other spouse gets retribution for that retribution, and on and on and on it goes. The temptation to vengeance happens in our everyday lives. It ruins marriages. It ruins families. It ruins churches. So what I want to do this morning is to talk about Romans 12, which centers on this statement, vengeance is mine. The way we act sometimes, we make that statement about ourselves. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is Drew's. We want vengeance to be ours to take. But biblically speaking, who is that statement about? Romans 12, verse 19, again, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is God who says, vengeance is mine. So this morning, this is sort of a, if you were here on Wednesday night, the point for home from our study of Revelation 19 centered on this idea of God as a God of vengeance. This is a fleshing out of that idea, sermon length fleshing out. I want us to think biblically about vengeance, about why exactly scripture says that vengeance is not ours and why it is God's and why all of that should be good news to us. So two simple points. The first point who vengeance does not belong to and why it doesn't. And the second point is who it does belong to. So number one, vengeance isn't ours. Let me just try take a moment and try to put Romans 12 in the big picture of, of the book of Romans. Um, in the book of Romans, Paul is telling us that the ongoing transformation of the Christian mind is completely incompatible with taking vengeance into our own hands. All of Romans is about God's power through the gospel to save anyone with obedient faith. In the first 11 chapters of the letter, Paul crafts this big argument how despite the fact that we have all sinned and how that all who are guilty of death have a death sentence, uh, guilty of sin have a death sentence hanging over their head, how despite all of that, we can still stand justified before God, not because we're so great, not because we dug ourselves out of the hole, but because God has created this magnificent plan for his faithful people called the gospel. And those who receive this salvation through the gospel become new people. That's the first 11 chapters of Romans in a very small nutshell. Chapters 12 through 16 of Romans are the so what of those first 11 chapters. Chapter 12 through 16, imagine, what would a community full of these new gospel people look like who lived in light of their salvation? And so the big picture summary of the, of the last part of Romans is Romans 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God that is the mercy that we have all received, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the overall message of this last section. And from there, Paul paints a picture of a community of gospel people who live that out in all sorts of ways. So in the next section, he talks about people who use their gifts in honor of one another and not in honor of ourselves. He talks about people who place uh, their brethren's consciences over their own individual rights. People who imitate Christ in all things. All these are applications of this idea. And in 12, 1214, 
Paul says redeemed people who are being transformed by the renewing of their minds are also a people who do not take vengeance into their own hands. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So let's talk through our text at a little more length now. Verse 14, Romans 12, 14 again. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Now, our instinct is to do the opposite of that. Our instinct is to hurt those who hurt me, to curse those who curse me, to hate those who hate me. But Paul says, you do the opposite of that. Two wrongs don't make a right. One curse, okay, I've, I've received the curse. If I now curse back, that doesn't undo their curse somehow. That doesn't make their curse somehow, uh, that doesn't make the, the scales of justice even out. Just because someone has treated me badly doesn't mean I have a license to crumple up everything the New Testament says about how to live in God's world and treat people. Just because someone has hurt me doesn't mean I can crumple up the New Testament and throw it away. But that is exactly what we try to do when we take vengeance in our own hands. We act as if, if someone has done something bad to me, now all of a sudden I'm free of God's word. And if that's the case, God's word applies to no one because everyone has been wronged at some point. And no one has to do what God says if being wrong gives us permission to wrong back. And so bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Verse 15 is sort of the better alternative to that worldly instinct. When we have a target for our vengeance, when, when we hate someone because of wrong they've done to us, we tend to respond to their emotions in the opposite way. If my enemy rejoices, I'm prone to be sad about that, to be upset about that. I wish they weren't rejoicing. And if my enemy weeps, I tend to, I tend to be happy about that. They got what they deserve. But in verse 15, Paul says, stop the vengeance, start the empathy. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And I think in this context, when he says, never be wise in your own sight, the idea is not just to think too highly of oneself, but something like this, to believe I have all the answers and I know what's best. And in the context here of vengeance in this paragraph, it looks like something like this. If someone has cursed me, if someone has mistreated me, if someone has persecuted me, I'm wise on my own sight. I know exactly what needs to be done now to make this even. I know how to give recompense. I know how to avenge. To which Paul responds by saying, don't think you know it all. You don't have the character or the know-how to be a good arbiter of justice. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When evil is done to us, we tend to formulate ways to be evil back. But Jesus would tell us, how are you any different from the godless Gentile or the tax collector? That's what Jesus asked in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Anyone can do that. The, the world does that. To love those who hate you, that's, that's something. Paul would tell us in verse 2, that's being conformed to the world, right? To formulate ways to be evil back to an evil-doing person to you. That would just be con being conformed to the world. Anyone can do that. Instead, he says, transformed people give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. They give thought to their integrity before they give thought to getting even. Being holy in your conduct is more important than your mental balance sheet evening out at every moment. Our job, he says, is not to avenge. Our job 
is to be at peace as far as possible. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, as we talk through all of this, maybe this doesn't sit well with someone here. Maybe someone is thinking, you know, I hear that, but it's just not fair. It's just not practical. If I do this, if I try to live this way, bad people will just keep getting away with their evil. And maybe you say to yourself, you know, I've always had a strong sense of justice and I consider that to be a good thing. Are you telling me not to have that? Are you telling me to just take it? I just know if I did what Paul says, I'd just be walked over all the time. If everyone did this, evil would never be answered for. And if you have all of these concerns, Paul already knew you would. Because he continues in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he continues, verse 20, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those who believe in God and trust what he says will have an abiding knowledge of the vengeance of God. They will know and they will trust God will take care of it. God will repay. God will get even. The biggest reason Christians can stand strong amidst injustice without taking vengeance into their own hands, without getting caught in the cycle of vengeance, without repaying evil with evil and becoming evil ourselves, the biggest reason Christians can do that is because we know evil will not be gotten away with. Yes, we live in an unjust world, but we serve a just God, and that world will not stay unjust forever because of that. And if you continue reading in chapter 13, by the way, Paul addresses one of the ways God makes provisions in the meantime to deal with some evildoing so that the world isn't completely run amok with this sort of thing. So in chapter 13 and verse 3, he will say this, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He says there is some provisional justice that can happen, that will happen now. But the perfect judge will repay all wrongdoing on the day of reckoning. And so the message to the Christian in this chapter is this. God is the only true and perfect judge. God is the arbiter of justice, which means... We are not. And when, when we try to avenge ourselves, essentially what we do is we play God. We put ourselves in his place, and we try to do a job we are ill-equipped to do. And so Paul says Christians are not called to vengeance. We are called to empathy in verse 15. We are called to humility in verse 16. We are called to honorableness in verse 17. We are called to peace in verse 18. We are called to charity in verse 20. We're called to do good in all circumstances, verse 21. Unless we think that this is some new innovation in the the Bible, in the morality of the Bible, and I always like to try to undercut that idea that the morality of the Old Testament is a completely different thing than than the morality of the New Testament, just to drive home that this is not a new idea. The law of Moses put it this way, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This has always been the ethic of God's people. Biblically speaking, vengeance cannot be ours. And before we leave this point, let me just nail down a few concrete reasons why. Why, that we've we've hinted at. 
But just three reasons why vengeance can't be ours. Number one, because we're just so bad at it. We are bad at doing vengeance. Vengeance is God's realm, not ours. When we try to take vengeance into our hands, we act like God. And in this way, seeking vengeance is is a little different than receiving worship or a little different than adding to Scripture in the sense that we put ourselves in a place only God is equipped to be in. Only God can receive worship. Only God can add to Scripture. And only God can do vengeance well. We are ill-equipped to be in God's place, always. We're too hypocritical to be just. We tend to ignore or excuse huge injustices we perpetrate on others, but we're prepared to call in the airstrike when some small slight has been done to us. Jesus said we, we tend to be this way. Do you remember what he said in Matthew 7? We nitpick the tiny specks in our brother's eye. Meanwhile, we have giant logs in our own eyes. In being so consumed with the injustices done to us, we usually ignore injustice we've done to others. There's a great story in the Old Testament about this. Great in the sense of uh, a good illustration, not a great in the sense of uh, exemplary. In, uh, in 2 Kings 11, there's, there's a queen of Judah named Athaliah. And what Athaliah does, uh, she comes on the scene, and the first thing she does is she kills all of her children and all of her grandchildren, or as many as she can, so that she can take the throne and be queen. So that's the kind of lady she is. A treasonous act, if ever there was one. But unbeknownst to her, her grandson Joash was hidden away during the slaughter, this baby grandson, and then seven years later, he is brought to the temple and announced that he is in fact the rightful heir to the throne and not Athaliah. And you know what Athaliah does whenever this happens? She runs around and she starts crying, treason, treason. So here's a woman with no actual sense of treason, no grasp of injustice. She can do it all day long and she doesn't bat an eye. But the moment she feels like a little something happens to her, she's ready to call in the airstrike. Treason, treason. No sense of treason until she feels like it's happening to her. We all tend to be like her, not on that scale. But we tend to have a a finely tuned injustice sensor that gets activated the instant some tiny wrong has been perpetrated against us. We're ready to cry treason and call in the airstrike. And we often seem to be deaf and blind toward our own sin. We also tend to go overboard. That's why we're so bad at it. We tend to go overboard in our attempts at vengeance. We are rarely fair and equitable and truly just in our attempts at evening the scales, especially when it's personal, when when pride, when ego is involved. You know, I think of uh, in Luke 9, there's a Samaritan village that wouldn't receive Jesus, that didn't want to welcome him. And so James and John, the sons of thunder, they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? All right, talk about overkill. And of course, Jesus turns and rebukes them. But I I always wonder if if John recalled that scene later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, when it turns out that the Samaritans were the ones who were obeying the gospel in droves. Maybe some of these same ones. And I wonder if he thought, what if God granted our prayer and the fire consumed the village that is now obeying the gospel? We tend to go overboard. There's a lot of examples of this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 25 God pronounces judgment against the Philistines in part because of their unquenchable thirst for vengeance. And that was God's reason to judge them. And so it says, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy a never-ending enmity, therefore, God says, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will execute great vengeance on them. For the sin of vengeance, 
God of vengeance. We are bad at vengeance because we tend to go overboard with it. And I think this is part of what Paul means when he says in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. That is, don't let evil overtake you and you become consumed with it. Don't conform to the world's perverted ways of getting even. Instead of being overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. That's something we can do. The next reason I think vengeance cannot be ours is is simply this, that the net result is just to create a bigger pile of evil in an already evil and fallen world. You know, the bywords of the vengeance seeker, the way they justify it is always justice. It's getting even or it's eye for an eye. And we imagine that by getting back at the person who has wronged us, we're, we're evening out the cosmic scales of justice. To which I think we need to ask, is that ever actually the way it works? Instead of evening out, what tends to happen is we just do more evil and we throw more evil onto the ever-growing pile of it in our world. We probably won't be very even-handed in our retribution. That's our previous point. And if our enemy is as vengeance-minded as we are, they probably won't respond by saying, oh, I see what you did there. I did something wrong and then you did something wrong in the perfect proportion. Now we're even and uh, let's all hold hands and be happy. No, they'll look for a way to get back at you again. Vengeance is is a vicious cycle. As the saying goes, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. You know, this is the way long-standing national ethnic conflicts are, whether it's Israel and Palestine or India and Pakistan over, over the Kashmir region. It's a never-ending history of eye-for-an-eye, tit-for-a-tat justice. And the thing is, both sides have very real gripes against the other because both sides have been avenging each other for several generations in several cases. Bad marriages are often caught in this cycle. One spouse does something that's insensitive or hurtful or unloving, The other spouse responds in kind because they want them to feel what they were made to feel. And then the first spouse responds to that reprisal with another one of their own. And they're never even. And they never reach a sort of homeostasis. And they only spiral downward in a cycle of vengeance. It's a vicious cycle that ignores one of the fundamental teachings of Christ, which is the golden rule. Our rule becomes treat people the way I think they deserve to be treated. Or treat people the way they treated me. That's our rule. But only through doing what Jesus says can we break the cycle in our marriages, break the vicious cycle in in bad relationships with brethren or in long-standing conflict. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Regardless of what they've done to you, do it to them what you would have done to you. Vengeance accomplishes nothing. It just puts more evil in an already fallen world. It just creates more rifts in already broken relationships. Let me ask you uh, just a few questions. What relationship was ever healed by an act of revenge? What relationship was ever healed by an act of revenge? What rifts were repaired by an act of vengeance? What broken marriage was ever fixed by an act of vengeance? What sinner was ever won to Christ by an act of vengeance? What prodigal son was ever brought home through a vengeful act? What ungodly animosity between brethren was ever mended through an act of vengeance? Please just give me one example of any of these, and I will alter my sermon. But until then, I'm going to keep preaching this. And finally, vengeance can't be ours, because ultimately it's a sign of our lack of faith 
and God's justice. I think this is the most serious issue, and it leads to our second point, and I will come pay off this idea here, here in a second. So let's think about the second part of our lesson, which is the fact that if vengeance is not ours, vengeance is someone's, and it is God's. Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I think verse 19 is the key to doing everything that the verses around it are telling us. Everything around this verse is telling Christians, vengeance is never ours to take. To bless those who persecute you, verse 14. To repay no one evil for evil, verse 17. To not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, verse 21. That's what Christians are about. Never take vengeance on ourselves. But Paul says that doesn't mean there is no vengeance. That doesn't mean that injustice is the, is the order of things, is the proper order of things. Instead, we are assured in verse 19 that God is the one who will avenge wrongdoing. God is the one who will set things right. That, that phrase, vengeance of mine, he's actually quoting there from Deuteronomy 33. That comes from the, the song of Moses, the final song of Moses just before he dies. And what he is doing in Deuteronomy 33 is encouraging Israel to remain faithful to the God who will avenge wrongdoing and vindicate his faithful people. God's vengeance is meant as an encouragement to God's people to endure hardship, to repay no one evil for evil, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We can trust God's vengeance because God's vengeance is not like our vengeance. Unlike us, God is perfectly equipped to render justice well and faithfully. God is not petty, and he is not insecure, and he's not hypocritical, and he's not sinful. What God's vengeance means is that he sets wrongs right. He punishes evildoers in the perfect proportion. He vindicates his faithful, innocent people. And throughout the centuries, God's vengeance has been a comforting thought to God's people. It is something they anticipated and something that they longed for God to render more speedily than he than he he seems to be doing. And so Psalm 94 and verse 1, the psalmist cries out, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? It's the opening of a psalm. Or when Jeremiah saw the evil of Babylon, he cried out these words, Repay her according to her deeds. Do to her according to all that she has done. For she has proudly defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. He's crying out for God's vengeance. We live in a world that is full of injustice, full of evil, full of sin, full of arrogance, full of oppression. God's call to Christians is not to respond in kind. It's to wait on him to render justice. Vengeance is God's to take, not ours. And knowledge of God's impending vengeance is how Christians can continually and patiently bear up against the evil of the world without responding in kind. Because the Christian knows there is coming a day when righteousness is vindicated and wickedness is punished. And so to to return to my previous point about how taking vengeance to our own hands is a sign of faithlessness. Taking vengeance in our own hands is fundamentally an act of faithlessness. It's a sign we simply don't believe God. When he says, I will repay, I will work it out, I am the perfect judge, we say, I'm not so sure. You know, it's easy to see why the godless man would take vengeance into his own hands. If he wants justice, he's got to go out and get it himself. 
But if we believe in a God of vengeance, what does it say when we go out and get it ourselves? We should know God will settle accounts. God will right all wrongs. It's fundamentally an act of faithlessness to take vengeance in our own hands. We simply don't believe Romans 12, 19. You know, even Jesus knew and practiced everything that we're talking about here. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 23, Peter observed this about the suffering of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus endured reviling and suffering without repaying in kind as he absolutely could have because he entrusted himself to his father who he knew to be completely just judge. It was knowledge of his father and his vengeance that enabled Jesus to endure suffering faithfully. As always, Jesus is the perfect example. So let me try to sum up everything, everything I've been trying to say. It is pretty remarkable how often the Bible calls God's people to absorb wrongdoing and not avenge it. Just to give you a, a little more flavor, to just impress you with, with how often the Bible is talking about this. There's a proverb about it. Do not say, quote, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay back the man for what he has done. The proverb says, don't do that. Don't say that. First Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. First Peter 3 and verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that is, to bless, that you may obtain a blessing. And what I'm trying to say is, the resource behind all of this, the, the thing we can draw on that enables us to do all of this, is the fact that we serve a God who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Never avenge yourself. Not because vengeance will never happen, but because God will do it, and God will do it perfectly. Our vengeance is tainted and unholy. God's vengeance is absolutely holy. Revelation 19 and verse 2 says, His judgments are just and true. And so we can be about the business of faithful endurance. We can even bless those who persecute us, knowing that the injustice that we endure and repay with good one of two things will happen to that evil done to us. Number one, it will be repented of when those burning coals fall on someone's head and they say, wow, I've really not been living well. Either that injustice and evil will be repented of or it will be avenged. And in either case, we can praise God for that fact. And so maybe there's someone here that has struggled with this idea, the core idea being that we simply don't believe that God will avenge, that God will, Jesus will return and he will right all wrongs that the humble will be exalted, the exalted will be humble. Maybe you need to repent of that sin or some other one. Maybe you need to come and to serve the God who will return in judgment one day. Whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing to encourage you. Can I?
glorify and praise Thee and love Thee evermore. Thank you for being here today. We have visitors and we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Please feel welcome to come to any and all of our services. Our next opportunity to worship together is at 5 o'clock this afternoon. So we hope to see you then. If there's nothing further, we'll have our closing prayer and then be dismissed.